Spoiler alert, this podcast will be covering material from all of the series of Game of Thrones as well as all of the A Song of Ice and Fire books, including Winds of Winter sample chapters. If you're not up to speed with all of that and don't want to be spoiled, then this podcast might not be the one for you. If you are up to speed with all of that, we hope you enjoy. Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R.R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series, you're listening to Podcast Winterfell. Now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. Welcome to Podcast Winterfell. It's a special edition of the podcast. It's dedicated to a song of ice and fire theories that may have been trumped or may have been enforced by the television show. We're calling this Video Killed the Book Theory Star, and we're happy to have you along with us. I've got a great panel coming with me, but first, I am Matt Murdock. I am from podcastwinterfell.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can find all kinds of other information like all of our contact information, social media information, and podcast app links. And if you take the time to leave me a review in iTunes or Stitcher of the written kind so that I know what you actually do or do not like about the show, then I will thank you in a future podcast. Right now we're pre-recording this, so I can't exactly keep the list up to date because I will have already updated that list in a pre-recorded podcast. But uh, please leave those written reviews. They help me stay more noticeable among the great Game of Thrones podcasts that are out there already as well. And since there's about 3 billion of them, then uh, it's important to get those reviews to stay noticeable. Like some of the members of our panel who have their own great Game of Thrones podcast, like the Joffrey of Podcasts from the Double P Podcast Network. We welcome back one of our panelists returning and always a joy to talk to Bubba. Welcome back, sir, and I hope your holidays were well. Happy New Year, everybody. You've waited so long for another podcast, Winterfell, and I'm here to tell you the show is spoiling the book. It's like night is day, day is night. Dire wolves and lions sleeping together. Mass hysteria. It's dire wolves is a good one, <laughs> actually, when we think about it. That is for sure. Uh, we also have with us uh, joining back for the first time in quite a while. We want to welcome back uh, Stephanie. How are you? Hello. I'm glad to be back and talking with all you fabulous people. Short and sweet, and uh, someone who's, uh, I don't know whether she's short or sweet. Well, I do know that she's pretty sweet. We welcome back our one of our A Song of Ice and Fire authorities and a great line reader from the Grand Northern Conspiracy podcast, Susan. Welcome back. Thanks, Matt. And this sounds like a really fun topic to discuss, so I'm excited to be part of it. Excellent. And finally, the girl who actually moved my needle on the Grand Northern Conspiracy podcast with it took her 80 pages of a document to do so. But we welcome back the ever popular and always extremely smart Kelly. Welcome back. 
Oh, thank you, Matt. It made my new year to hear that I moved your needle. <laughs> I'm going to try to talk a little deeper tonight to differentiate between Stephanie and myself. I just hear myself and her voice so much. I'm not sure if anyone else thinks we sound alike, but I'm going to I'm going to give you sultry Kelly tonight. <laughs> oh, right on. Sultry Kelly to start the new year. 2017. <laughs> Is sultry Kelly year. Excellent. Uh, I just wanted to say before we start this podcast, we are going to be talking about everything in the Game of Thrones television show. So if you're a book reader and you're one of those people who abandoned Game of Thrones um, because you don't want to be spoiled about what's going to be happening in the books, this podcast might not be for you. On the flip side, we will be talking about a lot of things that uh, because some of them haven't happened in the show yet from the books. There's still a possibility they might happen, and so uh, I want to warn you off of this podcast. So to the three of you who are still listening, besides the panel members who will download it later to see how I chopped up their words and put them out of context, then uh, I would urge you to stick around with us. And this idea was inspired from a great email from Mariah. We actually read it on the 300th uh, celebration episode uh, and the email said, I think it would make for a good episode to do a, now that we've watched this last season, what do us book readers and show watchers think the books is going to go or where they're going to go, uh, based on what happened in the show. I think it would be real fun to theorize and talk about the book theories and which ones might or might not make sense. So, uh, that was a great idea. I know that Bubba and Kelly and I were talking about that and we decided we wanted to do it. And so it's great to have those two. Uh, back with me and I didn't exactly know how to divide this up I, I thought well we can go for easy ones uh, which really kind of just trumps some of the more uh, outlandish theories that are out there uh, and then go into some characters that we haven't seen uh, in the show to date and then go through uh, some of the more complicated nuances of some of the theories that are out there and how the show may have, um, you know, endorsed them in a way or not. And uh, I guess one thing we can just talk about right off the bat uh, before we get to the actual list is the R plus L equals J. This was a widely accepted fan theory, and the show seems to have confirmed that, even though George R. R. Martin has never specifically done so in his books. Bubba, I want to ask you real quickly, is there a need for George to do that? Do you feel like it, that R plus L equals J was so cemented that there was no reason to think otherwise? I did. I was so proud of myself. I always tell the story. I was so proud of myself after the first book, I figured it out. I was like, Oh, this is great. And uh, then I, you know, went online and quickly realized everybody had figured it out. But I thought after the first book, I figured out this is great, but it is so obvious that of the million things I would love George to answer over the next 50 years, as he releases these final two books, <laughs> I don't need to see R plus L equals J. I think I'll be okay. All right. Um, Kelly, same? Same. I love to tell this story. I was so proud when I was sitting with my friend at her apartment and she told me her theory of R plus L equals J and I felt super dumb <laughs> when she spelled it all out for me. And I realized that oh, obviously this is the case. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it's very elegantly weaved in and does not need a... Uh, explanation in the text enough to be proven it's true and i think it's very satisfying which makes it even better so i, I agree that the show uh, was able to spell it out for viewers and the, 
Bookman readers are more than happy to say that we knew it before it was spelled out for us, <laughs> except for yes. me in my the, friend's apartment. <laughs> kind of the last red wedding for us book fans, right? You know, there's nothing more to hold back from the TV viewers, it seems like. Oh, I think there might be. We'll get to it, but there's a couple things that I think. Ooh. Are you are you saying are you saying the things that will show up in the show at all, or things that when they read the book that they will be surprised by? Uh, things that would show up in the show. Ah, then there's only one thing that might be. <laughs> okay, yeah. it limits it down. Limits it down. Stephanie, how about you? How did you feel uh, about the the rather hit you over the head reveal of R plus L equals J on the show? And does George need to be that blatant in the books? I was actually just going to say that I think it was well done in the show since maybe just viewers only wouldn't have gotten that. I know I have friends that probably wouldn't have gotten that, but for George to do it in the book, yeah, that would be a little heavy handed and kind of something that's over the head with it. Right on. Uh, Susan, last word on this. Well, I loved the way they did it in the show. I loved the, how they had the you know, little baby John and then went to uh, John Snow's uh, face. I thought that was uh, really sweet. It made me feel real emotional when it happened. Um, and I expect that George will sell it out somewhat in the books. I don't think it's going to be something that doesn't get touched on at all. In fact, I expect that, you know, there'll be some uh, more reveal or discussion about the whole Tower of Joy incident, you know, how the, the fight went down between the, the uh, uh Kingsguard and uh, Ned and his men, because I still think there's some questions about that. I mean, we saw what we saw in Ned's fever dream, but still, you know, I think that there's some some things that it would be good for George to, you know, clarify a little bit. Ah, interesting. Very interesting. Who do you suspect would be the person that that would reveal would come from? Would it be Helen Reed? Is he the only one who could? Um, or in a brand vision. Or in a brand vision. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, I, with that, uh, let's kill some uh, other easy ones. People have a lot of fun with this. And, and while technically, I guess you could say that I suppose it's still possible in the books, but it doesn't really seem like this theory was kind of out there in the first place. But the old popular Roose Bolton is a vampire or the Bolton theory even um, and some, in some ways those are very connected and very alike. And in some ways they're a little different, but, um, maybe some book readers could hold on to this theory for books only, but I, I, with Roos dying, it doesn't seem like that there's much of a possibility of this now, right? Unless he comes back from the grave, like a good vampire would. Mm, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, and Kelly, you'd made a point. Uh, about Roos as well that was different from the books, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't remember. And you'll have to forgive me. A lot of this show stuff, I've merged too much with the book stuff, but I can't recall if he had actually done any of that leeching in the show that was talked about so heavily in the books. And I think that was kind of a, a key component of the bolt-on theory. <laughs> yeah, there was, I agree. There was no leechings in the show. No show leeching. No oh, show yeah. I, did, I think they might have just... Um, consolidated away that theory a little bit it was one step too far and uh or they didn't they weren't smart enough to see it perhaps <laughs> <laughs> well gendry is does that make gendry a vampire he got leached more he has more case for the show than <laughs> than bolt roos does at this point yeah <laughs> susan did you ever buy into the roos bolton theory uh, i didn't 
really. That was not something I ever really got into. And how about you, Stephanie? I loved it. I thought it was hilarious that there could be a vampire. We have ice zombies. We have dragons. We have blood magic. We have smoke monster babies. I thought it was Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, add Frankenstein to that list, right? Well, yeah, that's true. Frankenstein. So, you know, a vampire, why not? I think I thought it was funny, and I always liked Ruth Fulton in the book. So I, I don't think it's going to be true, though. Ah, excellent. So so were you surprised by Ruth Bolton's death when you saw it on the show? I was. I was really surprised. Um, I think probably, I mean, Ramsey's such a sadistic, crazy person. We should have seen it coming, but it was still very surprising to me. I don't know about you guys, but I was, that was one of the moments of season six that really shocked me. It was really audacious that he did it just there. Like the, the, the dog thing, you know, with his, with, um, uh, Walda and the baby, you can kind of like, you know, claim off that, you know, there were no witnesses. It just happened. Oh, so bad. But like, he just did it in the hall and that was the Lord. And that was like, the the fact that he killed. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) A little intense. So, the yeah, the audacity of it was a little shocking for that for that purpose. But um, do you guys think that that this, I don't want to take the conversation in a direction? But were we comparing the show to the book? Or are we saying that the book the show is killing these theories? Because would you say that this makes the theory less plausible? You don't think it'll happen, Matt? <laughs> I really don't think it'll happen. Uh, and uh, as far as that goes, I, I think that that Bubba had a, a, a really good point, which we can bring up uh, in, a, in a couple of places, but the fact that, uh, Bubba, you were saying, what about Ram- Ramsey and the Pink Letter? Well, yeah, so, you know, the show and the book timelines are, are so divergent at times, even though a lot of times the same thing happens. And so at the end of A Dance with Dragons, this is going to the Pink Letter, and the in the pink letter, the pink letter is signed Ramsey Bolton, true-born lord of Winterfell. And one of the things that I believe George R. R. Martin himself kind of mentioned when he wanted people thinking about the pink letter is, well, why would Ramsey, if Ramsey wrote it, why would he title himself true-born lord of Winterfell? And so I was wondering if, once again, the show wasn't kind of spoiling the books by saying, hey, guess what? At the end of Dance with Dragons, Roos is dead. Ramsey killed him. And so uh, I think it could certainly be we no longer have a POV character in Winterfell to really tell us this. But I wouldn't be surprised if we find out that uh, Roos got Ramsey. Interesting. Well, here's my whole take on on that, Bubba, if you'll indulge me for just a second and that is that was Roos Bolton ever named Lord of Winterfell or just Warden of the North because I always assumed that he would return to the Dreadfort and Ramsay was only becoming Lord of Winterfell because of his marriage to fake Arya uh, I never read it that way I think we may have to call up some of our A Song of Ice and Fire scholars to really confirm you may be completely correct but the show, I thought, for such a great villain that Roos should have been, I thought his death on the show was a little underwhelming. But the main thing it made me think is, oh, well, of course, 
Bruce would be killed by Ramsey, especially when he, when Walda was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, did the show just spoil a moment from the winds of winter? And that's that's what it felt like to me. I never believed in the vampire theory, but like a lot of people, I love fun, silly theory. So I enjoyed it a lot. So, uh, my thought thought is that does this mean that in one of the early chapters of the North of the winds of winter, one of the first things we're going to hear is Bruce is dead. Could be. Could be. The, the interesting thing is, is that now at Winterfell, we really don't have a POV character in there anymore, do we? The closest we'll get is Asha. I think if you know if Stannis wins and he gets and he takes his <laughs> group to Winterfell, then he would be. Then she would be there as well. I think that's my guess. Or Theon. Yeah, I guess Theon is with her too. I'm not sure what that would. I think they know. He said Theon with um, Jane to the wall, right? Or did they all know? No, not yet. Okay. Oh yeah, they're gonna. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh. When's the winner? When's the winner discussion? Susan, correct us. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that that's gonna happen. In, was that in the sample chapter of Wins a Winner? Yes. Okay. It's been a while since I yes. read Theon. So. Okay. And that Matt, I, Matt I, I do agree with you in terms of the titles. I do think that uh, that you're correct in terms of uh, uh, you know Reese's title as uh, Warden of the North, and that he would be the the uh, Lord of the Dreadfort rather than Winterfell. But I also kind of agree with Bubba that it just seems strange that Ramsey would send that pink letter if Reese is still around. That is an interesting point, and I bet we're going to get to more to that later when we talk about the GNC, aren't we, Kelly? You know it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I do want to. I do want to add. I do want to add, like like Stephanie pointed out, there is a really good, like even if there, it's not true, it's a fun homage that people kind of put together. This connection, like Frankenstein, was kind of obvious, but and the White Walkers and zombies thing is kind of obvious, but like the pulling in the classical horror of a vampire was less obvious, and I thought it was really creative. So I would be disappointed if more came of it, but you know, it seems a little far fetched for it to be like you know, Gregor is not you know. Frankenstein and the White Walkers are not zombies. So for it to be so obvious as he is technically literally a vampire wouldn't happen, but it would be maybe more inclined towards it if there were more clues. You know what I'm saying? Understood. If Roos is or is not a vampire, can we all agree now that Euron is not Dario Noharis? At least in the show, (laughs) we know for sure that he is not Dario Naharis in the show, which means he's not Benjamin Stark and he's not Septa Lamore and he's not all of that other stuff that I always make fun of. Um, but Stephanie, let's go to you first this time. Um, where were you on the Euron equals Dario theory at, at any one point, and um, how do you feel uh, about things now? I was always kind of with you, Matt, on the Dario equals. Benjamin equals Euron equals everyone. Um, I never really put much stock into it. Um, I always like to joke about it, but I don't really have anything poignant to say except that it was just kind of fun to say that there's five different characters that are actually just one character masquerading around. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Susan, how about you? Did you ever buy into the Euron equals Dario theory? 
No, I didn't. It's another one of those that, to me, just didn't make any sense. Fair enough. Straight up. Kelly, how about you? No, I, I thought it was, very, it was a reach and it was very clever, but there was a lot of factual things that made it difficult to uh, to get behind. So I was not disappointed. In, you know, they, the visual part of it that they couldn't do it in the show was a clear restriction that they couldn't prove it in the show. But um, it being disproven by the show is less obvious to me because of, the, you know, the, the way they completely didn't do the um, Barristan reveal. I feel like that's a problem that they just kind of worked around. So would I say that it disproves it? No. <laughs> in the book but uh i think it, it makes it even less likely it's kind of a strike against it yeah good point good point and bubba i'll give you the last word on this because i know you wanted to speak about uh the winds of winter uh, also in terms of your own well first off let me say i feel like we need somebody to represent this for equal time and i'll mm. say that i'm not that person i thought this was a dumb <laughs> theory and I agreed with it but uh, listeners, write podcast Winterfell, hit Winterfell Pod on Twitter, and 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 tell your Euron equals Dario theory because I wanna, I would love to go there. I would say one thing that uh, I think the show missed a great opportunity in is introducing Euron so late and having him only appear in two episodes of season six, in that. Uh, the Winds of Winter preview chapter is out. Uh, in that preview chapter, the damp hair has a vision of, sure enough, Euron in King's Landing, and I believe the uh, Red Keep's throne room, if I understand the vision correctly. And it, the book seemed to be definitely building Euron up as this great uh, character, this great terrible force out there. And in the show, there's just no way they can do it. And so a part of me wonders why the show waited so long to introduce him since these chapters, uh, especially this preview chapter, Winds of Winter, seems to make him such a great kind of potential threat out there. But because the show, you know, introduced him in season six and then only in two episodes and then in both minor scenes as two episodes, is this, once again, the showrunners kind of playing their hand and saying, you know what? Euron's not really all that. He's not much of anything. Mm. So I, I didn't know if once again the show could kind of be hinting at something. I, I was going to open that up for debate if anybody wanted to jump in. Yeah, well, I can tell you, first of all, I can tell you exactly the reason why Dave and Dan waited so late. Because uh, George hasn't been writing. That's why they waited so late. They were waiting on George to give him more information, and he wouldn't. But uh, let it let's open it up for debate. Kelly, what do you think of Bubba's thought there? I think it's def- it could be possible. There's a lot of things that go into making a show, and I'm sure you're considered that, Bubba. But I'm just my thought goes more to- in that direction of like they didn't want to touch the king's mood. It seems like it seemed like they just kept putting that off and putting that off. And when they finally did do it, it was really disappointing. So I'm I'm my, that kind of leads into what I'm thinking that is bleeding into Euron is the sad disappointment of like, we don't know what to do with the Ironborn right now. So that's just, is my interpretation of his lack of luster in the show. Um, it could also be the actor isn't ideal for it. There's a couple of things that more into the production side that I kind of scrunch my nose at when I think about it. 
Um, but I don't think it has anything to do with the plot. Like, I feel like it has more to do with their ability to execute. Yeah, I think that Neuron is shaping up to be very important in the books. I think it'll be really different than the show. Um, I tend to support the idea that if we look at the series as kind of a three-act, that Joffrey was the villain in Act 1, and Ramsey in Act 2, and that Euron is shaping up to be the big bad in Act 3. Um, that uh, I think that if people want to uh, read some interesting stuff about this, that there is someone on Twitter who has a Tumblr by the name of Poor Quentin, and he's written a lot about uh, Euron. Uh, he talks about uh, what he calls the Eldritch Apocalypse, that Euron's going to be this big magical villain as magic takes a larger role in these last two books. And uh, I think he's going to be very interesting. Um, one thing, I think, from Melisandre, from some of her visions, when she talked about uh, seeing the towers by the sea submerged beneath the black and bloody tide, and that will be where the heaviest blow will fall. And she really didn't know where that was. And she kind of said, oh, yeah, maybe that's Eastwatch, but she didn't really think that's what it looked like. I have a feeling that she's looking at Old Town, and as we see this this uh, sample chapter of Euron and how he's going to be, uh, you know, with uh, uh, his brother Aaron having these visions about this uh, tide of blood that he's going to be sailing on. I think that we're going to see a lot coming from him. It's going to be pretty gruesome. Well, I just kind of wanted to touch on your other point, Matt, that you said um, maybe Dave and Dan didn't do much with Euron because. George hasn't been writing, um, so kind of to veer off, do you, are we ever going to get the Winds of Winter? Because, you know, normally we get an update from George about now, and we haven't heard anything, so is he even writing, or is he just leaving us all discussing these theories for endless hours? Yeah, I think the pressure has passed since the book is now passed, or the show is now past the book, and there's right. no, like, he doesn't have the pressure of finishing it before the next season, it's just not going to happen, so he's going to focus on that and that seems fair <laughs> but yeah it is kind of like they're so divergent now i like what you said susan about the the importance of yarn in the book sorry i just wanted to <laughs> i was kind of getting giddy while you said that <laughs> yeah yeah but i i would say this goes to you know importance in the book in that you know some characters quote unquote are important in the book but when will they really quote unquote be important to the end game I think if you look at A Dance with Dragons and you look at, sure enough, for Quentin Martell, he, he had a big point. He had a big part of the book. He was a friggin' POV chapter. And we followed him on this journey. And in the end, he really didn't have much of an impact in the end. Uh, and then I'm wondering that, you know, here we're following uh, through someone else's POV, admittedly, but we're following Euron. But once again, does this imply that his impact in the end is rather minor? I admit it's tough to see because, you know, there's a chance he could suddenly take over season seven. Uh, I doubt it, but I he could. So that's just my thought process there about, you know, yeah. quote unquote impact, you know, quote unquote important. You know, like I'm saying, Quentin Martell had the importance enough to get his own POV chapters, but was Quentin really quote unquote important to the story uh, I, I yeah. wouldn't think so I think that in, in that 
end-to-end game that, I mean, Euron isn't going to be one of the people that makes it to the end or becomes one of the main figures in the end. I think that, um, that he's there to cause a lot of problems. And I do believe that uh, looking at Quinton, looking at Aegon, and looking at Euron, who all kind of came in here in the, you know, Feast for Crows, Dance with Dragons timeline, I think they all are kind of distractions uh, for what's going on in the end game with our main heroes, but they're there to cause problems. I mean, like uh, for instance, in the uh, in Danny's uh, uh, House of the Undying, when she talks about the Mummer's Dragon uh, being there to give the heroes something to fight. Okay, so there's Aegon is there. He's the Mummer's Dragon. He's there to give the heroes something to fight. He's not going to be important in the end game when it, I think it's going to come down to our heroes of John, Danny, and and uh, Tyrion being the the three that everybody thinks are going to be so important to the to the very end game. But I think that all of them are going to have kind of dark arcs, meaning John, Danny, and Tyrion, uh, things that they're going to be going through and wins, and some of it will be what they're dealing with with these characters. Not Quentin, his role gone obviously but with Aegon and Euron. Very interesting. Stephanie let's go back to you. I know that you brought this one to the table for us to discuss. You wanted to talk about Stannis and whether he's on a feudal mission. How do you, how do you feel about that? You know I, I have I had high hopes for him in the book because he's the only one you know that came to the North's aid. He believed John. He wanted to know you know defeat the rant, the Boltons. Um, and so in the, in the show, when they killed him off, I was actually really, I was surprised by that too. Um, you know, Melisandre believed he was Azor Ahai. Clearly she switched that prophecy to John, but, um, you know, I, I wish he, he wasn't on a futile mission. I wish he would, I wish he would be like King of the North, or I don't even know that, but I, I just like Stannis, and I was just kind of sad to see how his story ended. He just kind of, you know, he got defeated, and then Brienne killed him. It was just, I don't know. It was kind of a lackluster ending for him. Yeah, and you would have liked to have seen uh, something better, right? Let's yeah. let's toss it around the room. Um, I I don't know what this really says about Stannis' future in the books. Um, he hasn't even gotten to Winterfell in the books, but uh, I don't know. We'll we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens once he gets to Winterfell. I suppose one thing is for certain: the same people aren't there, and that that's going to be a, a question for later as well. Uh, Susan, what do you think about Stannis? I mean, do, does the show here? tell us that, that Stannis is going to die and the show just dispensed with him in the best way that they could? Um, I don't think the show ever got Stannis very good. I don't think Dan and David really uh, got his character uh, or really portrayed him real well in the in the show. So I was very disappointed. I think, you know, it, it, just, it wasn't a satisfying end for him. I do think that I don't think he'll make it to the end, but I think it will be more significant. I think he is going to capture Winterfell, and um, I believe that he likely is going to sacrifice his daughter. I think it's kind of a, 
George playing around with the uh, Agamemnon theory from the you know, Greek uh, Trojan War, who Agamemnon, I'm not pronouncing that right, Agamemnon, Agamemnon. Who, yeah, had to sacrifice his daughter uh, to get favorable winds to sail to Troy. I mean, I think that, I think that Stannis, I think that there's been all sorts of hints from the, you know, several books on to where he's going to have this uh, uh, feeling that he has to do this horrendous act in order to defeat the others or, or something. And I think that it, it will come down to something like that. And in the end, it will be that he, you know, is wrong. He's not a Zora High. But I think it will be much more satisfying than the way that the show portrayed it. Understood. Understood. Kelly, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with Susan. And, and kind of combining that with kind of what we were talking about with Euron before, there's a way that the characters can be categorized into whether they're creating distractions or whether their efforts are kind of more productive and positive towards what this main final end game, which is going to be the, the battle um, for the Dawn remake thing that they have coming up. And it seems like Stannis is, is more tragic because he has worked productively to create positive um, alliances and, and bringing people together to um, in a way that looks like they are more ready for this battle. And the fact that he did die in the show was really sad and it seems kind of empty, except for if you, which is weird because if you read the book, you're like, no, he's not dead. But you kind of enjoyed that Brienne was the one that killed him because he's such a dick to women. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of balanced it out for me a little bit. But um, yeah, I I think that uh, he's got more to do in the, in the books and I appreciate more of his character in the, in the books. Um, I love the actor. So it was kind of hard to to say that Um, I don't appreciate the character as much in the show, but yeah, the, the writing for him wasn't as um, satisfying, I guess. Like, and I and I love the quote of Donald Noy because it kind of did come to fruition in the show. Is that you know he is pure iron and he will break before he bends, and that's what his fate was. And I think that'll be true in the book. It'll be true in the book, but it will be after he's done more positive things and he's been more productive for humanity at that point, which will be tragic. But that's George. <laughs> Right on. And Bubba, I'll turn to you. First of all, before uh, you give your take on Stannis, um, I know that you've got some points to make, but I want to ask you, um, does the pink letter already tell us what has happened to Stannis? Matt, I'm going to answer possibly yes. I know that's kind of a weak answer, putting the qualifier possibly in front of it. But I want to go there and I want to respectfully disagree with Susan in a lot of ways. And I, I started thinking about it because to be completely honest, when and how the show killed Stannis was one of the most shocking things to me because uh, I was there with everybody. I was there where like, okay, Stephanie, he's there at the Cofters village. He's got the lakes, which he can lure people out onto and, you know, have them think in the lake and they're, you know, get a good victory. But I, because it feels like Martin has left so many clues for how Stannis could win. Hell, the Freys who are marching out to to get him have the Manderleys about to stab him in the back. And so in just my whole thought process, I've been thinking, okay, he's definitely going to win this Battle of the Crofters Village. But I started thinking about the feast dance tandem again. And if you mm. look at the books as a whole, you have certain things. You have Danny, Cersei, and John getting put in leadership positions and all kind of failing for different reasons. 
And I suddenly started thinking, well, what if, you know, we had Quentin on this feudal mission and, you, you know, you're reading him the whole time and you're thinking to yourself, okay, he's going to go there. He's going to go to Daenerys. He's going to make things happen. And once again, it was a, a true lesson of futility. I started thinking, well, what if Candace's mission was kind of like the parallel to Quentin's, which, and it turned out to also be a feudal mission. And let me say, if that ends up being true in the book, in a lot of ways, I'll be blown away. I'll tip my cap to, to Martin in a million different ways. Because there are ways that, you know, Stannis is in the most precarious position you could possibly have. And it does make more kind of logical sense if we now all agree John is one way or another going to become the king of the north if he's the one who takes Winterfell as opposed to Stannis and this, uh, you know, kind of army of characters we don't really care about. And so I've flipped the script. I guess I used to think like Susan, but now the show has me thinking that that poor Stannis <laughs> could end up the same fate that poor Quentin does. Uh, obviously, you know, we won't know uh, for another 10 years until the book comes out, but <laughs> I think that would be, to be, it would almost be mind-blowing to see how, you know, Stannis is in such a bad place, you know, he, he's in such a bad place, but Martin, Martin has sprinkled so many hints of, well, yeah, he could do this, he could do that, he could do this, you know, yeah. Has so many advantages. Ooh, we could try this trick that they tried at the sisters, you know, that we've talked about in some of our things. And I suddenly thought, well, boy, if he's hinted, left all these hints to make us think that, you know, he had, he has a chance, and then he didn't have a chance, and blow me away. Now, how in the world does that tie in? How in the world could Stannis then tie into the burning of Shireen? Because in the book, she's back uh, at Castle Black. I forget if she and her uh, posse have left for uh, the what was it, the night port they were going to move to. But uh, I'm beginning to see how it definitely could be an early winter for poor Stannis. Uh, I rambled on there a bit. I don't know if anybody yeah. wants to jump in. Oh Well, I, I like that you brought up the whole Shireen thing. Let's just go ahead and jump to that. I have it later down in the list. But let's since we're here, let's go ahead and talk about this. Like you mentioned, uh, Shireen is currently at the wall with her mother, Selyse, and with Melisandre. And my whole thing is... Of course, the suggestion about sacrificing Shireen came uh, from Melisandre, right, to Stannis. So does Stannis have to be involved in that? I know from a character standpoint, that would make it very interesting and very harsh and, and make us rethink how we like Stannis in the books or not. But what if this is more about, because of the way the timeline is in A Song of Ice and Fire, what if this becomes more about Melisandre rather than just saying words over John? about a, she feeling a sacrifice needs to be made to bring John back. Is that a possibility? Um, what do you think, Stephanie? I think that's definitely a possibility just because Stannis isn't there physically with Shireen or Melisandre. So he can't actually say, hey, stop, stop. Like, let's not do this. Um, I'm sure Shireen, I'm not sure if I remember correctly, but I'm sure she has guards and everything around her. So there'd be plenty of people to stop Melisandre if she wanted to do such a sacrifice. But, you know, Selyse, her mother might just be like, yeah, okay, let's do it. Um, so I think it's a definite possibility. Again, I was shocked by it in the show. Um, that was one of the moments that made me cry. That was so heartbreaking to watch Shireen burn. 
Um, I, I, I can't believe that Stannis did that. I don't think book Stannis would allow it though. Yeah. Uh, and I could see Celise personally, I could see her saying, yes, go ahead. And then right. having regrets as it was happening um, to give her a moment because we've never really liked Celise all that much in the books. Right. Um, what do you think, Kelly? Yeah, I agree. I could see Celise going, uh, being charmed or she's a fanatic, you know, she'll follow her leader who is Melisandre. So she'll, she'll, if that's what she suggests, I don't know how Melisandre would sell it to Celise. Um, I don't know if she would have to, or just by saying this must be done. Cause if it's to be done to raise John, it seems like she would be forsaking her belief in Stannis as Azor High, which is kind of maybe one of the reasons why Felice is so strongly supporting her, is that her husband is this heroic figure. Um, but yeah, if, if that doubt is not maybe presented, maybe if she just presents it as, we need to do this as a sacrifice for your Lord husband's success far away somewhere. And then it's secretly to raise John, something like that could, I, I could see that, but I'm not George guys. I can't write this. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I could see somehow <laughs> that happening. <laughs> I could see her um, doing this sacrifice. If it's going to play out like it does in the show. Um, there's more to Shireen, I think though, than, than just as a sacrifice. So that would be, um, I think disappointing, not even like sad. It would just be kind of a, want want to the to the book um there's a whole that whole thing with val when val is a little bit more she's horrified at shireen being at uh, castle black and there seems to be more going on about her having grayscale and that storyline i think i feel a little let down if, if that thing comes something and she is kind of an underdog like she's a she's a broken thing and i want her to survive <laughs> so i hope that part yeah i hope that part's not yeah. true <laughs> now bubba what if I told you that Melisandre is going to tell Shireen or tell Celise that she has to sacrifice Shireen in order to save Joffrey Baratheon. Get get a match. Let's do this. (laughs) (laughs) But Matt, if I could jump in and say, I think thematically, even though it, it was impossible to see books, Stannis doing it at the time it aired on the TV show. And it was actually kind of impossible to see TV Stannis do it because it felt like in just one or two episodes before he had said, are you crazy? We're not doing it. (laughs) But I think for the narrative to pay off, Stannis does have to be a part of it. Okay. And so does, does that mean, for example, he has a terrible loss at the crafters village and then he writes to the wall and says, have them do it. You know, I don't know. I, I feel like because of the vision of everybody's favorite buddy, Patchface, <laughs> amongst the skulls there at the wall, I almost feel like it has to happen there. But that may not be true either. I, I, difficult to see the future is. Yeah, and there was the whole scene where in The Winds of Winter when Stannis tells Justin Massey that, you know, you will support Shireen's claim to the Iron Throne. I mean, of course, he's just saying that, and he isn't saying it in front of Theon. And so maybe there's some doubt that could be claimed because of the audience. But it, it, I mean, his character doesn't seem to have any reason to think that Shireen's going anywhere. She seems to be his future hopes. So it seems odd that he would have any inclination to do that in the future. Does that make sense? Yeah, unless he wants a shadow baby ruling the Iron Throne. Exactly. After he's gone. (laughs) 
I think he prefers his stone, <laughs> the, he prefers his stone, stone baby. <laughs> yeah. Susan, we haven't heard from you yet. Any thoughts on uh, Shireen? Yeah. Um, well, first off, I mean, I won't rule out that she could be used in the uh, Melisandre resurrecting John situation. But, I mean, I, that's a possibility, but I tend to think less of that. Uh, I think John is going to is not going to come back quite so soon in the book as he did in the show. I think he may remain in ghost and there's some other possibilities of things that could happen there. So um, I do still think it's possible that Shireen could join Stannis. I agree with Bob. I think he's going to be involved in it in some way. It's going to be this tragedy that, uh, that he actually comes to that. I just don't think it's going to happen because he needs to melt a little bit of snow to make it to Winterfell. Understood. Very good. Well put. With that, uh, we do have one other one in our easy category, and that is uh, Bran is not the Night King, at least not yet. Uh, Stephanie, did were you a supporter of, of the Bran is the Night King theory? No, but I like it. Um, I think I first heard it from a YouTuber called James of Thrones, Um he has this whole big theory that Bran is going to, he's going to turn into the Night's King and somehow they're going to save, I think, Westeros. Um, I think it would be a neat idea because now Bran kind of, kind of, uh, you know, lost the plot. He made the Night's King come to him and now they can possibly cross the wall and, you know, um, I'm rambling, but I think it would just be an interesting thing if Bran became the Night's King, because we see the Night King as this evil being. We don't really know much about him. So. I mean, uh, it, is there any possibility in the books, do we feel, that uh, Bran's role will become more sinister in the story? I think this comes from the fact that Bran has done things which we're constantly told are wrong. You know, Bran has has wards into Hoder, and we're told that's wrong. Bran, theoretically, if you believe Jojen Pace, Bran has tasted, you know, Bran has tasted human blood. And so I think the thought process, or many of these theories, came from, you know, Bran keeps doing things that you're told you're not supposed to do. Now, I never thought he would become a Night King-like character, but I did think he might cause some terrible things to happen. That's just from the books, and sure, sure enough, on the most recent season of Game of Thrones, we did see him cause some terrible things to happen to our good buddy Hodor. So, while I never believe this theory, I think Bran's uh, ability to uh, stark things up uh, is still definitely a possibility. Very interesting. Uh, Susan, how about you? Uh, yeah, I don't think that Bran or Blood Raven, uh, aka Brendan Rivers, are going to turn out to be evil. I do think that, or the Children of the Forest, I think they are going to be great characters. I think they may do some things that are questionable ethically uh, in terms of, what, you know, the actions to hopefully in the end be supposedly helping to get to the end game, but they may do some bad things on the way to getting there, but I don't think either of them are going to be evil or that the children of the forest are evil. I just don't buy that part of it. Understood. Understood. Kelly, last word on it. 
I'll have the second to last word because I'm going to make you have a statement on this. But my just argument against it was that the Bran was told he would never walk again, but he would fly and clearly saw the Night's King walking. So debunked, I think, is the word you're looking for. Matt, what do you think? <laughs> well, I, as you know, I like to say Bran, Bran everywhere, but not in a, no. a white, icy clad kind of outfit. No. no. Yeah. I, Specifically stalking his half-brother, John. No. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, wh- while we're here at the... Because cho- we talked a little bit about the Children of the Forest. Let's just go ahead and, and kind of unwrap that one uh, while we're here. Because the show gave us a reveal about the origin of the White Walkers. Do we feel like that the books are going to offer a similar reveal um, there's a uh, Blu-ray uh, history and lore from the season six Blu-rays that explains that there's kind of a gap between the time of the pact at the God's Eye and the Long Night. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering if if George has been hiding this reveal about the children of the forest creating the White Walkers for some kind of you know dramatic revealing effect later on, because even in like the world of Ice and Fire. And everything else, we have nothing in terms of textual evidence to indicate that the first men were attacked by the White Walkers before the pact. Um, so was that information just omitted and strictly given to the to the showrunners uh, in order to create because he'd been holding on to it for a more dramatic reveal in the next book where Bran is still with Blood Raven? Um, let's go to you, Susan, first. Yeah, uh, I find this to be very interesting. I When I first saw it on the show, I thought, oh, that's how it happened. But then the more I thought about it, the more I also agree with, you know, you know I read and saw things about it not really syncing up with the timeline of what we know about the history. But then again, we're told that this, you know, the history could be, could be wrong in certain ways because if, you know, some of this is, it's so ancient that we don't know if they've got it right. So right. I really, you know, this is one that I'm kind of torn about. I'm not sure. I think it's possible that they're going to go that way, but I don't think it's a given. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say that's a good point because, you know, the, the, the stories of the first men have been passed down basically orally. And we all know how, you know, if you play a game of telephone, what happens there. Um, also, uh, information gets lost and, uh, other than runes, the, the first men didn't archive any kind of their history. So, um, right. that's an excellent point. Um, and George, George himself has, has made, uh, comments about the fact that you can't necessarily take all of that, uh, uh you know, as per datum or, you know, the way it definitely is. Very good. Very good. Uh, let's go to you, Stephanie. What do you think about the origin of the White Walkers, or even the way the the others we've been shown that the others are new others? I guess are created um, in the show with a with a touch from the Night King. He can create a baby. That's where uh, Craster's babies have been going. Well, with regards to the how the White Walkers were first made in the Children of the Forest, when I first saw that, I was like, "This might be controversial, guys," but I was like, "Wow, that's pretty lame." Like. What? Seriously? Like, there's just this human, presumably a human, the children of the forest stab him with a magic icicle, and he turns into the Night King. And then all of a sudden, you know, they become this 
quote-unquote evil race of beings that just get away from the children of the forest. I don't know. I, I, I kind of didn't want to believe that that's the way George was going. Um, to me, it just seemed, like I said, it was kind of lame. I'm not sure what I would have wanted from that, but it just seemed like, you know, Frankenstein's monster got got away from him. And, you know, I don't know, just not very, I didn't like it. <laughs> I'll be the counterpoint and say that I did like it. I think one of the things that it definitely made me feel when I saw it on the show, because, you know, I was talking about Euron being in only two episodes in a very short scene. The show gave us what I believe you would call the Cliff Notes version of how the White Walkers were created. If you look at that, mm-hmm. it's at the most, what do you think, a, a two and a half minute scene? The right. explanation is like, the explanation is like two lines. And so I do like it. I think certainly when George, when and if George gives us to it, there'll be more uh, what you would call meat on the bone, more kind of facts to round it out and kind of explain it in detail and all. But I, I did like it. It's like, okay, that, that makes plenty of sense. That works with the history as, as I knew it. I know there are these gaps about w- what happened when, but one of the things George always says in interviews is about how the timing of things, you know, well, that's what people say. He, he always goes to that. So I liked it in the show. I think it, it was a, you know, two-sentence two explanation of what we'll find out in the book. And uh, I assume I'm just going to like it more in the book. So uh, I was down with it. Cool. Kelly, how about you? I can agree with, with the both of you, but I, I have to, <laughs> to I have to sway a little more. I, I honestly agree a little bit more with Stephanie. I think the the feeling I got from the um, the others, the White Walkers, the they were another race. They were another species. They were another being. And the fact that they came from humans felt a little deflating, like a little use that word a lot tonight sorry yeah (laughs) yeah it was just a little uh underwhelming um it was a little bit of a salve on the wound that it was kind of um ironic and how uh, your creature comes back to bite you kind of situation and that that was a little bit more narratively interesting than it could have been if it was just we created them um and now they exist so i guess that that gave a little bit more oomph to the to the narrative but it, it didn't feel as exciting as if this is another race and we must learn to negotiate and live together or find some way like to think that years and years and years ago there was this negotiation that happened between these three different species was really exciting and you could say that now they have become another species um they're so different at this point but their origin story was um less thrilling i think the fact that they came from humans because that kind of makes it feel a little bit more human-centric and I'm a little opposed to that. My Star Trek background makes me feel like it's a little too human-centered universe. <laughs> it makes the children of the forest even that less, I don't know, real Magical. at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't seem, they seem like they are the only other not human creatures and they're wiped out. So it kind of makes that, that whole characteristic of the story, that, that fantastical part of it feel less exciting. Well, <laughs> Kelly, Kelly and yeah. Stephanie, would you, let's go back to, gosh, what was it? Season three or season four? I forget was it, which one it was, but what did you think when, when you saw Craster's kids become, you know, become the, become the white walkers? Did that, did that disappoint you that, oh, a human could be turned into a white walker in that sense? Or, 
or was it just this, oh, they completely started from, you know, human beings? I was just going to say, I actually liked um, the way they did the baby thing, um, you know, with the Knights King being all creepy and then all the White Walkers standing around them. And um, maybe because I was more not as cynical back then in season three, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I liked that reveal. Um, and the fact that they did start from humans, just, yeah, it kind of was a little bit of a letdown. So I don't know, maybe that was backtracking on my original statement, but I liked what they did in season three. I would say I, I enjoyed the, yeah, the, the origin story. If I view it this way, like you're saying, and it's, so Ender's Game spoilers, guys, there's a race that they meet where they are have different phases of life and they kind of become one phase and then it looks like they're dead, but then they become a tree and there's this whole other existence that's different from their original existence. And it doesn't even look anything like we wouldn't know of as life, but it's just a, their way of living. They're a whole other species. That, to me, is very, very creative, and it blew my mind when I read that. And I never thought of species that way, as they can be something we would be so unfamiliar with. So that was more of what I got from when they turned the baby into uh, another, a White Walker. Is like That is what they came from, but they are this completely different species at that point. Um, that's like their food. That's their that's their breeding mechanism, is they need a host, and then they breed. And I guess if I tie that into their true origin story is shown in the show that it it does make sense. It does connect them a little bit more and it's a little less disappointing to think of it with the fact that they started that way. Now they've become this self-reproducing existence where they (laughs) aren't human at all. And they just grow from that. That's their reproduction cycle. (laughs) Thank you, Boba. (laughs) Well, well, I knew, I know both you guys pretty well and I know how much you both love crafts. So I thought that would cheer you up. True, true. <laughs> uh, can I add a, something else onto that too? Is, is what I what I liked about uh, what they did this year with creating the others from the, the uh, children, uh, the fact that they, that it did get away from them is to me it was kind of like similar to thinking about like a biological weapon in our world that you know we we created something and then it got away from us and started this to. Um, create something that then was a threat to the world. And to me, it seemed like it was kind of a nice analogy to have that then with the dragons being kind of of similar to nuclear weapons. So you've got this biological weapon, this nuclear weapon, things that are these powerful, powerful things that can get away from us and then threaten the very systems of mankind. So I liked that kind of analogy. and, um, And I really liked it when they did uh, turn the children. I thought that was, uh, you know, really creepy. But then it got me thinking about the others raising these little baby whites and how did they do that? Do they have, you know, little white daycare? (laughs) 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 There are some logistics there that are weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. So those are my thoughts. Yeah. Excellent. Let me ask you this, Susan, real quick. Um, Did you find any traces in the books that that made you believe that that the reveal about taking the babies that that was what was happening to them because it's been too long since i've read clash just kind of some of the comments of like pastor's wives about the brothers are coming you know some of Mm. that you know you know i i don't know that 
you know, it, it just it did seem like there was some sort of connection between Craster making sacrifices and, you know, the others being involved. I don't know, you know, how it all all works out, but, uh, you know, that's, that's all I can say. And I didn't, and I don't see anything that uh, in the books that has made me think that uh, the others were created by children of the forest either. So right. maybe it's all a big mystery. Right on. Big reveals, destroying our books. But White Walkers are humans, too. White Walkers are people, too. Uh, let's go on to uh, some characters that we have not seen in the show uh, to date. And we're going to ask whether we will see them in the show or if the fact that they're not in the show diminishes their uh, roles in at least very least the end game of the books. We're going to start out with one of the ones that I know that book fans have been clamoring for to be in the show, and now it just seems too late to me. Uh, and Bubba, I know that you share this sentiment with me, but let's talk about Lady Stoneheart. Is there any chance that she could come in? Is there any reason for her to come in as far as a television show goes in? Stephanie brought up an excellent point in our doc here that they've kind of get shifted the the Stoneheart role, like to Arya, who's killing Freys and all of this. Um what do you think about the whole Lady Stoneheart situation? Okay, well, I'll just say it. I have always feared that the reason why the show didn't include Lady Stoneheart is that Jamie and Brienne are just going to kill her and get away. And that, Ooh. as terrible as this sounds, to me, if that happens in the books, I'm going to wonder, yeah, what was the point, too? Now, people say, oh, Lady Stoneheart may do this. She's showing us, oh, how, you know, focused on just revenge is, just, you know, wrong and all this stuff. But to me, you've got to have some effect on the plot. And if, if, for example, you know, there's some trial by combat and Brienne defends Jamie and Brienne, you know, wins and or kills Lady Stoneheart and the two of them get away, I'm going to be sitting there going, what was the point of this? which is terrible because it implies that I need Jamie or Brienne to die or maybe both of them to die in this coming, uh, you know, kind of confrontation with the brotherhood and lady Stoneheart. But to me, it never made sense why they wouldn't include her because I, I like a lot of readers have found her so fun. And now I'm just verbalizing my fears that maybe the show is telling us something about the books as to, well, something along the lines of, well, this doesn't really, once again, affect the end game in any substantial way. I've gone on my little uh, fearful rant. If anybody uh, believes we're going to see Lady Stoneheart speak now or forever, you know, forever hold your fingers into your throat so you can make some gargling noises. <laughs> or, or you can just tweet Bubba at Fit and Trim. That's F I T T E N T R I M. Um, let's go to you, uh, Susan. What, what do you think about this? Uh, I, I don't think we're going to see her on the show. And I think that Bubba brings up some really good points. I, again, it's one of these things where I just don't know because, you know, part of me wants to see her involved with the. Uh, brotherhood in uh, enacting revenge on the phrase in some sort of a you know red wedding 2.0 at the the twins that a lot of people think is going to happen. Um, but of course we have 
Jamie and Julianne that have disappeared into her lair. So, you know, can those two things both happen? I don't know. Stephanie, uh, you brought up the point about Arya. They're kind of giving these uh, killing phrase role to, to her. Um, right. And, and you, you, you're thinking, is this in line with you thinking that uh, we're going to get uh, the Brotherhood Without Banners um, in in the uh, wedding ceremony? A kind of re- do, uh, a revenge red wedding, so to speak? Well, I think so. And I think like you brought up, this, they're about three seasons too late to actually bring in Lady Stoneheart. So then they said, okay, well, we'll give you know, Arya has been training as this faceless man, supposedly. So, you know, we'll give her the task of killing the phrase, kind of getting revenge. Um, and then, you know, the Brotherhood, we see the Helm join them. So I feel like there's a storyline there, um, at least in the show. Um, but, you know, I just want to say that I, I, want, I wanted to see Lady Stoneheart just because of all the artwork I've seen online from the fandom she looks really cool, really scary, really creepy. I just kind of wanted to see that, like, on screen. Obviously, that's not going to happen, but I, I think it would be cool to see, like, Catelyn Stark as a zombie lady with her face clawed off and stuff, as morbid as that is. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder if it wasn't because Michelle Fairley wasn't available uh, anymore, and that's why they didn't want to do it uh-huh. uh, myself. But... uh Kelly, you get the last word on this one. <laughs> I, yeah, I agree. I feel like it was written in the with Stephanie. I agree with. I feel like it was written for TV. Like this is just so visual and sick and twisted, and it'd be perfect to have in the show. And I, I don't know if the the character, the actor thing, would be enough of a roadblock for them if they have replaced several key characters several times. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a good that's point. Only... And with, the, with the kind of prosthetics you would need, maybe not, maybe so. Right. Exactly. So I don't know. I wonder if it was just, they didn't, they're consolidating too far. I feel like that would have been perfect for the show. I don't have a good reason why they wouldn't have included her. Unless like Bubba says, she doesn't have a purpose, which I am mm-hmm. optimistic. And I say that she's one of the Stannis type who is productively moving people to be in the right place for when the big show comes. So that's yeah. my hope. <laughs> she's a minor mover. <laughs> yeah. So uh, instead of Lady Stoneheart, we're just going to continue to get a Beric Dondarrion, I guess, is more or less the way it's going to roll out. Let's move on to another character who uh, many of us got fascinated with in, in Feast for Crows, uh, and then who we didn't really know much about after that, uh, Marwin, um, who uh, last seen, I guess, johnning onto a boat uh, headed for Essos. Um, is there any need or any chance that we would see Marwin in the show? Do we need to see him, and is his role in the book's in-game significant or insignificant because if the show chooses not to go that route. Um, what do you think, Kelly? It's significant might change between the book and the show because it seems like if he's going to show up in the show, he'll be at Old Town because there's no reason for him to go to Marine at this point um, unless he does the old Barristan pulls his mask off and he's been with Danny the whole time. Um, they give <laughs> that reveal to him. Something like that, I guess, could, I don't know, or he could meet her when she lands. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. 
So my only thought is like in the books, it seems like he'd be a perfect character to teach Danny how to control dragons, um, to decipher um, kites. That's how I've always said it. But on our last episode, I noticed everybody else said it differently. <laughs> Kite? How do you guys say her name? Quake? Quake. Quake. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to decipher Quake's brain know. teasers. No, I agree. That sounds better. <laughs> so those are the two things that I'm going to have to see a new character fill that role of if they're not going to have a Morrowind. Uh, but it, well, yeah. to that end, has has Kaith, Kaith, Quaith, has she outlived her usefulness on the show? Is there any need for her there? Which is weird, right? Because they've casted her, so like use her. But yeah, it does seem like they haven't mentioned her in a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, how about uh, how about you, Stephanie? What do you think about uh, Marwin? Any need for him? Was now Marwin was the one that Miri Mazdor mentioned, at least in the books, that she learned from him, correct? Yeah, it's like a little Easter egg that she learned from okay. him. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if she said that in the show because she if didn't, she didn't she didn't? She didn't, I don't think. Okay, then I, I guess there wouldn't be any need. People would just I, I like Kelly's idea that he could help Danny and you know, decipher the prophecies and train the dragons and stuff. But I think it's just adding another character that we probably just don't need at this point with only 13 episodes left. <laughs> right. And, and do you, do you feel that though, some of those things that Kelly brought up that he could do in the books? I mean, do yes. you think that he'll reach Danny in the books? I, I, I hope so. Um, I like the magical aspect and he seems a little, a little quirky and I like those kind of characters. So I, I hope he would have a purpose, but you know, we've been talking a lot about end game purposes and who yeah. knows? <laughs> yeah. Bubba, I'm more scared of Marwin than, than I like him. What, what are your feelings <laughs> on Marwin? Well, this is one where I'm going to kind of try to split the difference and say that I think Marwin could have an end game purpose, but because even in the books, he said, has such a minor presence, I don't know why you wouldn't give that to another character. I don't know why, if Marwin has some knowledge, you couldn't just give that knowledge to Sam just happens to pick the right book in Old Town and, oh, here's this thing I need to know. Yeah, my thought on that was that Marwin would be like the perfect Hermione of the story. Like, he just knows things because you read it in a book. You know, you can just assume he knows it, and that's why. <laughs> right? But I guess Sam would fill that purpose after some time at the, um, at the Academy, at the Citadel. <laughs> but, but, yeah, Matt, my I cast think, name Hermione, so. <laughs> Matt, I think this goes to an even bigger question. They didn't get Sam on the road. You know, they could have had Sam spend all of season six in old town if they had really followed the book he would have left a lot earlier arrived in old town at the end of season five and spent season six in old town and so we really could have spent some a good amount of time there but now with the showrunner saying there are only 15 episodes left what is old town really going to mean in when all is said and done in the show probably not much either sam's there by himself right now and so uh, sorry, and Gilly and Baby Sam, but uh, you know what? What what can Old Town really provide to the show's end game? And so, once again, you're questioning. Well, what was the point of even going? Why why was it so important? You know, we need to we need to see, and it it could just be to re- learn one single fact in one single book, and then be like, okay, we learned it. Next. 
Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be that would be the show's way of doing it, right? The shortcut. So, and that's why I think Amaruin at the Citadel would be kind of fix that, where they have one character who's already ready to hear everything Sam has to say and absorbs it, believes it, and says, "I read this in a book. Let me take you there." And goes to the one book that they need with the one fact in it that they need. <laughs> Maybe. Glass candles are burning, guys. Glass candles are burning. Susan, what does it mean? <laughs> well, I don't think that if Marwin is not in the show or is not at all important in the show, that that doesn't mean he won't be important in the book. Um, I really think mostly for most of these characters that I won't make that analogy between the two different mediums at this point, but um I don't think he's going to appear in the show. The only reason I think that he would appear at all is, is kind of like what you all said, if he's there to be some sort of support to Sam in his old town scenes. Um, as far as in the books, I do think that he is going to reach Danny. And in terms of what you all said about maybe educating her about dragons, he could also be uh, the first person to tell her about the others because he knows about those as well. And um, and as far as the the Quaith role, I also the only reason I could see him her coming up at all in the show again is if she has anything to do with Jorah and his grayscale. Yeah. Yeah, that was a thought too. That I was thinking Marwin, but Quaith is a better thought for for meeting Jorah. That's a good catch, and that brings him back into the story if he knows where where or he knows how to figure out where Danny went and can lead this wise person to whether it's Quaith or. Marwin to lead them to her when she's healed, which will happen, I believe. <laughs> Can I say that, that what's interesting is both of those characters, Quaith and Marwin, I mean, you know, we're talking about their roles in, in the show, which, you know, Marwin doesn't exist, Quaith, you know, just in the second season. But both of those characters, they're really not in these books much at all. I mean, come on, they are... They are there's so many characters. minor minor characters in the book. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, 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 We've got Terrell brothers who uh, are are more in the book <laughs> than freaking these people. Yeah, I, the only thing is, is that it, it just seems like it, it came across to me reading reading both of those characters that they're much more economically impactful than a lot of the other side characters, and that's why I think I expect more out of them in the books. Um, than than what we would ever get in a television show. Yeah, their usefulness would be greater than even that of a Lady Stoneheart, which I could understand them leaving her out because like Arya could fill that role, but like we don't have many characters that will know everything that these characters could believably know. All right. Well, wh- why don't we move on to another character who's to me is not likely to be on the, on the show, but uh, we're talking about uh, Aegon or Fagon depending on your point of view. We know that Varys, having firmly backed Daenerys and seems to have been in the backing of either Viserys or Daenerys the whole time, um, definitely seems to point to the fact that there's no need for an Aegon, at least from what we know in the books. Um, Bubba, though, you said that this might tell us something about what's going to happen to Varys, right? Well... This is, let me explain for everybody my thought process in this, and I mentioned it briefly in one of our previous podcasts, is that since varies in the books, 
Varys is totally on Team Aegon, and he's not really on Team Daenerys. If she marries Aegon, great, but he's not on her side at all. So that really makes me think that book a, a book, excuse me, Varys has to die. Why? Because he's fighting the woman in, in a lot of ways. He's against the woman with dragons. And if there's going to be in the book the Dance with Dragons 2.0, then you would assume Varys is on one side and you would assume he'd have to get it. But because show Varys has been, uh, is now been presented as totally on Team Daenerys, I'm like, well, is he, could he possibly live in the show but not in the book? Which is, in some ways, what I think is going going to happen with Dario. Dario seemingly is going to live in the show, enjoying his uh, hot summer nights in Marine, where in the books, because of certain visions, I believe Dario's going to die. And so I guess I'm just kind of lost in this, in that does this indicate what does this indicate for what does the show indicate for the book? The various could maybe switch sides easily. I, I don't know. I, I, I think that's just my whole thought process. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see how the two characters really kind of, to be honest, I, I, I'm not a fan of the Fagon plot in the book. I thought, oh, great, just another quote unquote obstacle before we get to the real menace. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, and so I, you know, I, I'm just kind of the two characters in the book and show of various are the two kind of end goals make me hard to see how they can both end up in the same place. Uh, Sorry, I rambled. But but that's in my head. Like the Sansa character, they've just diverged so far from their storyline in the book that you're like, this is a different character at this point, so the plots aren't going to end the same for these characters. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, well, I I, just to be completely honest, I kind of disagree with that sentiment in that, yes, show Sansa did uh, suddenly take on (laughs) <laughs> the Fagaria role, but I could easily see book Sansa ending up up north, let's okay. say, and I could easily see the Knights of the Vale being part of the forces <laughs> that help free Winterfell from from uh, the Bolton oppression. I could see oh. how that could work. I just have a, and maybe people don't. I, I could see how that could happen. I don't. See so ignore it. Okay, so if you're in my comparison, <laughs> the no, no, no. Varys character. I'm just saying the Varys character has, has veered so far from his his book character that he's not even the same character anymore with the same end well, game. His goal, yeah, his goal is yeah. for sure. Okay, so, okay. I, I don't know. I, I, I've i never thought anything, you know, not only did I dislike the Sagan story, but I, I also thought it, the logical conclusion is that Danny's going to have to take out the Mummer's Dragon. Bye-bye, Fagon. I don't know. Anybody agree or disagree? I definitely agree, Bubba. <laughs> I, I don't definitely agree with anything that, that Bubba's saying about it, but, uh, I mean, I do think that it, it's kind of, I already said this before, but to, to encapsulate that, I think that Aegon is going to play a role, that he, he's there to usurp Danny's uh, coming in as the uh, you know conquering hero, uh, he's going to be there to uh, uh, probably get to King's Landing and defeat the Lannisters first, and um, be uh, potentially uh, supported by the Faith and take this role that Danny's going to then have to come in and do the second dance of the dragons that George was hinted at with him, and it'll put her into a 
adversarial role may be uh, perceived in a negative role by the people in Westeros uh, because of, of this happening. Um, and again, here's something where I would recommend people reading the series of essays by Brendan B. Fish called, uh, he's got two of them, one is Blood of the Conqueror, which is all about the uh, Aegon and his uh, uh, comrades, and the other one is The Dragon's Mercy about Danny. and I think he's got some really good takes on, on how some of this is going to be take place in these last two books. Very interesting. Uh, did we hear from everybody on that? Kelly, you heard, we heard from you on that. A little um, bit. My, my, my pipe dream finale is always that Danny and Dagon join forces, save everyone from the White Walkers. And then Danny goes back to Essos and lets Dagon rule Westeros. <laughs> I want Danny to rule in Essos. That's my, my dream finale. Cause she, you know, and I feel like they're both really good rulers. So that's all book though. That, I mean, for a comparison with the show, I feel like they've just consolidated into Danny and they've, use the Varys character as this is what he's always been gold oriented for and just kind of wiped out anything with Aegon and young Griff and, and old Griff and John Connington and all that. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of John Connington, I mean, obviously they've given the Greystale to Jorah instead of John Connington. Um, so there's probably no chance of seeing him, but Bubba, again, you had another point that you wanted to make about John Connington in, in terms of role in the books. Well, in the book, it feels like, and I know uh, we've already mentioned that it felt like, oh, isn't Shireen in her grayscale? Could that somehow affect, uh, infect, excuse me, people up at the wall? It has definitely felt to me like you can't have uh, John Connington down in the South and have grayscale and not, you know, be pretty much a hot zone and cause people to catch it. if this is important, then theoretically, uh, maybe this is, you know, once again, if Jorah is really going to fill that role in addition to whatever role he actually fills in the book, uh, you know, how do you do it? Can Jorah somehow get to Westeros and infect the people that Connington was going to, and yet, once again, still do whatever you would call uh, Jorah's uh, role at the top? I don't know. I, I I don't think Jorah's going to infect a lot of people. That would definitely make us hate him and wish, hope he kills him. You know, the show Jorah, you'd be like, well, you need to kill yourself. You need to burn yourself. You can't, you know, give other people this terrible disease. But once again, I, I don't see Connington living, you know, too much longer. And, uh, you know, I would say respectfully to uh you know, people are like, oh, like Susan's saying, oh, well, if you read this, you read that, it, it shows some, you know, ways that, that Sagan and Connington and, and this second dance of the dragons could really affect Daenerys' character. Uh, let's hope it's entertaining. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'm just on the total opposite side of that. So far. Right on. Okay. Any other thoughts about uh, grayscale? Uh, is that something we see uh, happening in in the books becoming? I mean, is this to be like the the Black Plague kind of taken from medieval history uh, that George likes to do? Is is this the way he brings the the Black Plague into everything to make everything darkest before the dawn? <laughs> I've I've never actually thought about that. But I, I kind of like it. I never thought about John Connington in the books or Jorah spreading the grayscale, even though, I mean, it kind of seems fairly obvious. 
because it's so contagious and everybody's so scared of it. But I mean, I wouldn't put it past George to have a plague on top of a war, on top of famine, on top of dragons. So I, I find it an interesting idea. <laughs> I'll concur. I, I agree with what Bubba has to say about the grayscale. I think that it is going to play a role both uh, in the North and South in some way. Um, not sure about Sojora, but. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a, a show feature of this world to have Jorah catch it and kind of get him away from Danny for a while. I think the book consequences are going to be much die- more dire because it's been foreshadowed with what happened in Old Town and what happened with um, uh, his wife in Essos. Sorry, I totally forgot. The, the cheese monger's wife in Essos. <laughs> Um, it's been foreshadowed a lot and, and then Val's reaction, like horrified at Shireen, like it just has this history. So I think it's, it's going to happen. Maybe it'll affect Aegon's army and that will be his downfall and he'll need Danny. But I think the book is going to be where the grayscale shows up. I feel like the show, it, it took so long for anything to happen to Jorah. They just don't have that kind of time for it to really <laughs> affect people in mass, you know, like he's already, he's still not in Westeros unless he like snowed away on one of those boats. Um, possible, I guess, but the whole thing that I have with Jorah is he specifically told Danny that he would end things before he would let anything get too far. Yeah. He did that right when he said goodbye to her and she ordered him to find a cure. So I'd be more convinced that Jorah might end up in Westos or in Westeros at Old Town seeking Maester's help to try and get that if to get cured. Um, if anything, if he ends up at Westeros at all. Um, at least, and I think that that probably depends on oh, the contract the actor signed. <laughs> to be perfectly yeah. honest, they gave him an out so he could be in a couple movies. He's in a he's in a movie that uh, just came out uh, this week, I think. Hey Matt, I want to ask people. I want to ask people going the other way. So the fact that the show gave Jorah grayscale, what do you think that implies for Book Jorah? Do, does that mean Book Jorah is definitely? B-O-A. Hmm. Interesting. Point. Where is Book Jorah? He's <laughs> with Tyrion in the second song. Okay. Yeah, okay. he's really having a terrible time. Outside. He's got lots of tattoos. <laughs> he's got tattoos and he's whelps and, and everything else. Yeah. Book Jorah might appreciate Grayscale. He'd be like, yeah, let's end this <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, because, like, isn't the pale mare running through the camps and everything? So he, you know... <laughs> Jorah dying would kill uh, a, a theory I got a while back uh, via email saying that Jorah is a Zora High. I don't know if I ever shared oh that on one of the theory guys or not. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, that would kill that one for sure. Um, well, we know yeah. who his niece and niece is. Yeah, we definitely know who his niece and niece is. Maybe he's her niece and niece. How about that? Oh, oh man, he, he would love that. <laughs> Matt, I think really, you read my mind. I, I, we were going to talk about that, and I, it was what I was typing up the email you about when we were going to talk about that. I was like, I don't want Danny to be somebody's niece and niece. That's lame. And I wanted somebody to be her niece and niece. That's awesome. <laughs> Jora would volunteer for that. <laughs> sure. yeah. I want to see Jora end up at the night watch like his father wanted him to. That would be my ultimate ending for him. Well, I don't know if it'll happen with him being so far away, but you know, who knows? Yeah, do you, you think go. that 
do you think the show giving him grayscale means that that's not going to happen in the books? Like, it, it, you know, we're talking about the show spoiling the books or influencing book yeah. thoughts. I just Can he actually I do it? I just don't take that the uh, a lot of what happens in the show for necessarily having any specific spoiling on the books anymore. I just think that I just look at it as two different things at this point in time. Oh boy! Uh, yeah. You know, I I, I I I don't think that. I think hold the door. I think the the burning of the shireen have kind of shown in my mind that the show is really gonna is gonna give us a lot of connect a lot of the dots. For what we're going to see in these books, it's possible. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that's a good worry to have. <laughs> Well, let, well, let's go this far, and this is probably a conversation that you all had while I was gone um, during season five. But does the fact that Barristan is gone in the show does that mean that he's going to die in this battle in the Winds of Winter? Good lord! I know that was so upsetting when I saw that on the show. It was. <laughs> so I think it's likely. I don't like it, but I do think it's likely. It does seem likely in the books he's kind of passing on his knowledge to these younger generation. He is kind of influencing them, and it does seem like it would be noble, and that's how he wanted to die. Like, he didn't want to be discharged. He wanted to die for his his sworn protective protectee, you know? So it, it, it works, but it's sad. <laughs> Who isn't even in the city right now? You know, he's not even serving as a Queen's Guard right now. He's just serving as a general. Well, I was going to say, I've I've kind of had this thought, and I've read certain people online who paint it better. Is it feels like Book Barristan might be a version of Ned 2.0, a soldier getting involved in backstabbing politics that just doesn't, an honorable soldier getting involved in backstabbing politics where he's out of his league. And so, yeah, the, the show definitely made me think Barristan... Uh, He's not going to need to shave anytime soon. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, what do you think? Uh, I I mean, yeah, I think he's a goner. I, I don't want him to be, but, you know, the show is just going on a massacre of all of our characters, and I can't think that George is going to keep them all because he has so many more characters that we don't even see in the show. So, unfortunately, I don't think there's some surviving. I agree with what Bubba had to say about uh, him, you know, getting in over his head and uh, so forth. And so my question is, is he going to die in the battle or is he going to make it back to the city to find out that Shade Pate has gone ahead and massacred all these people that, you know, is going to really make him feel bad for what he, the role that he took in all of that. You know, have they massacred the young cupbearers and other hostages, hostages and, uh, yeah. king and, and so forth there? Um, or is she going to be the one who comes back to the city and finds that out after he's died in battle? I think it could be either or. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, why we don't we move go, on? Go with the most tragic answer. Go with the most tragic way. So, yeah, that's <laughs> how we go down. We know George. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, why don't we move on to House Dane? And the only really significance we've seen in House Dane is maybe a mention here or there in a in a Blu-ray history and lore section. Uh, we did meet Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, in the flashback to the Tower. But 
Um, there are folks that do like to still theorize that Ashara might still be alive, that she might, in fact, be Septa Lamore, <laughs> even. Um, and if we don't have the Aegon storyline and we don't have uh, the whole Blackfire Connington thread, um, I mean, is is she not Septa Lamore? Is she is she in fact dead? Um, or will we even see House Dane at all? Will is it possible? Um, that because we now have this alliance in the television show between the Sand Snakes and and Daenerys, um, might they start calling their their bannermen to to arms, and and might we see what remains of the Dane family? And do you see the Danes affecting the story in the books at all? I know that's a lot to unpack. Um, and why not start with you, Stephanie? Well, let me just go on record as saying I love House Dane. I know we don't see them in the show, but um, the little or the bits that we get about them um, in the books, um, they're from Dorne, if people don't know that. Um, we don't really know much about Dorne except House Martell. Um, but I really love House Dane in the books. Um, I, um, I, I want... Ashara Dane to be Septa Lamore just because there's so many little clues. Um, but, you know, again, that's another like going into Benjamin as Dario as Euron territory. Um, I, I'm not sure what would the implications be of Ashara still being alive. What do you guys think? <laughs> Good question. How about you, Kelly? What do you think? Unless she's like her only role that I saw was, was that Septa Lamore would be the clearest uh, role for her to play at this point. She, I mean, Ned's dead. Uh, we're assuming Barristan's going to die. Like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> Those are the only connections I really saw her having. Um, there seems to be too many swords already. They seem to not be able to want to bring, they don't mention, uh, that was it the um, morning star, star of the morning, the, the, the sword, dawn sword of the morning. The great sword. Oh yeah. The, the wielder is the sword of the morning and the sword is called dawn. Yeah, the, <laughs> those don't seem to come up very much. And understandably, the show is trying to be simple, so I don't see them appearing in the show for simplification reasons. Um, I, I don't see the consequence of them, sadly. I love them in the book. I agree, Stephanie. Like, that little Edric thing is adorable and yes. so sweet. So, But, like, again, the only character that he would possibly interact with would be Arya, and she's way past having conversations with little boys at this point. So... <laughs> Sadly, uh-huh. sadly, I think they're simplifying it down to not using the house dame. Susan. As far as Ashara being alive, um, I used to like the idea of her being Septa Lamore, but I've kind of gone away from that now. Um, <laughs> I always thought that she might uh, influence uh, Barristan to change from Danny to, to Aegon, uh, but uh, I don't know. I just don't, I don't see that happening now. Uh, in fact, I do think uh, I don't think we're going to see any more of them in the in the show, other than what we already saw with the Tower of Joy. Um, I also think they're a really cool house, and I've heard people talk about the fact that George doing that, uh, you know, wanting to do the five year jump and then changing that, that that might have had a role in in changing what he did with House Dane. But um, whether we see uh, Eddard or not anymore. We do still have Dark Star, and uh, uh-huh. uh, yeah, so 
I mean, possibly the fact that we have Obara and name has slipped my mind, who is the uh, the uh, guard for uh, for Martel there. Aria Yeah. Aria yeah. Going after Darkstar. So that may be what brings us into House Dane in some way. And who knows, that might involve the sword. You know, who knows, maybe Darkstar is going to try and steal it or, you know, I don't know. That's that's probably what I see as the biggest role at this point, that there's someone that, you know, going to be from the house there. Very good. Bubba, last word. The Danes will never be on the show. Let's just give up that toast. I think one of the reasons why people like the idea of Ashara Dane being around is once again, she can tell us and fill in a lot of the exposition, the missing pieces, if you will, of the L plus R, R plus L equals J theory. Like her being alive, she could fill in a lot of this stuff. She could answer some of those tournament Aaron Hall questions. And so I would love for her to be Septa more or for her to be alive or come into the story some way that. But it's mainly really kind of filling in, once again, connecting dots. Her character in the book I think could be great at where that's not needed in the show and in a lot of ways so many of the dots about R plus L equal J have already been filled in. So. Well, that actually Sorry, speaks uh, to the one. Oh, that's good. That actually speaks to the one question about R plus L equals J that probably for end game purposes seems most important. And that is, you know, regardless if John is the song of ice and fire, so to speak, you know, being Rhaegar and Lyanna's son, um, that doesn't really strengthen his claim to the throne any more than Gendry's, who is merely a bastard. Do we need um, more allusions to a marriage between Rhaegar and Lyanna? Um, and, and to dispel the show has very much portrayed the whole kidnapping thing. They haven't brought to light anything else um, that would really show love other than maybe Littlefinger's talk about uh, to Sansa. Um, you might find shades of it in there, um, and you may find shades of it in the Tower of Joy vision that Bran had where, um, you know, Liana was basically, from what we can gather, whispering to Ned, you know, you have to protect John uh, because Robert will kill him. Um, but there, there doesn't, there's still this missing piece as to whether Rhaegar and Liana, because Liana did cry when uh, Rhaegar sang his sad song uh, before the tourney at Heron Hall. So, I mean, did, Le- did Liana in fact love Rhaegar? Was there a marriage? This would all point a lot to Jon's legitimacy to a claim to the throne. And does that make Ashara Dane more important in the books for the reasons you stated, uh, Bubba, to throw those... To throw to fill in more of this of that story so that we know where John stands in relation to that, and do we even care where John stands in relation to that? <laughs> it seems apparent to me that either John or Daenerys has to die, uh, as far as the end game goes. Um, that's just the way that I see it personally. What do you think about that, Bubba? Yep, I you took the words out of my mouth, Matt. I don't forgive you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I just think I, I just think you know, John. If if you know you get mixed messages from Martin, if you know, quote unquote, uh, the the right to the throne, you know, these things are important. 
you do need that filled out in the books about him being, you know, not being a bastard, being legitimate. It also could be great for his character to find out, hey, all my life I've been called a bastard. I'm not a bastard. Uh, could the show just do a real quick brand vision on this? Could the wet nurse who was there explain any of that? They could both probably accomplish the same thing. Mm-hmm. Or like a more useful character that could connect those dots that would be related to characters we've met and have grown attached to would be Helen Reed, right? Oh, yeah. So I think his appearance would fill the role of Ashara, but give him more connection to things that have already been established in the show. Maybe. <laughs> With fewer questions, perhaps. Um, and yeah, I don't know. If we're, if we're going from the show to the book and seeing that there are implications that direction, then maybe even seeing John step down from being... Lord Commander might kind of imply that he doesn't want leadership anymore, but then I just talked myself out of that when I realized that he did kind of accept King of the North like immediately after. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Well, I don't know. <laughs> he was kind of thrust into that, I guess. So maybe that's not his his wish is not to rule. So maybe he doesn't have to die, or Danny doesn't have to die. Oh yeah, one of maybe. them's gonna die. <laughs> nah. <laughs> Bitter, bittersweet, bittersweet, bittersweet. Yeah. I agree. I, I, I agree with you, Matt. That's really all I have to say. I agree with what you have to say about that. And oh, because then I have... Yeah, Papa was saying about, uh, you know, that we need some of that information about what happened, uh, you know, with Taryn Hall and then John's legitimacy and all that. But, you know, we'll just see. I don't have anything yeah. to add other than I agree with what you all said. Very good. <laughs> Stephanie, last word. Um, I don't have anything to add about that, but can we talk about Howland Reed? Sure, go ahead. I know we've all been waiting to see him in the book. Um, We finally saw him on the show. I was very happy because I've always liked the reads. um, And Howland does. He's the only one that's left alive that knows what happened at the Tower of Joy. And I was just, um, do you think we'll get him in the book? I think George has said that we'll meet him. But I was just wondering um, what everyone else thinks, because I think his implications of what he can tell and the stories he can tell us are huge compared to some other characters. So I think it would be a real um, letdown if we didn't meet him or at least get something from him in the books. Yeah, yeah I think I think if the North unites under John, like in the show, I'm thinking if if the North is united under John right now, then I think the first step he does is he goes and finds his father's best friend and who's holding the neck. And that's really important. And I could see the show going right to Helen Reed and getting the the meeting. And, you know, if John comes to him, then he's in, you know, Holland is in his home safe and he can tell him this secret. And there you go. (laughs) Is that another theory that we've killed that uh, Helen Reed is the high sparrow? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but possibly, they, both have, they both have naughty hair. Uh. <laughs> they both have naughty hair. And I, I love the way that the show originally, and now we know uh, the show decided to to say that we, we focused on his bare feet on a couple of those shots early on in season five simply because he was a cobbler, right? A shoe mm, cobbler. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. But but uh, but uh, for a minute there, I think Helen Reed is the High Sparrow fans were were thinking, oh, oh the show's telling oh. us, the show's telling us. <laughs> hype, yeah, hype was that's large. Why Mira, that's why Mira and John's 
Gwen too, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all still possible, guys. Come on. Susan, I lied to you earlier. Balen Swan is the one who went with um, Obara. It's not Aria. Sorry. No, they both the- went. Uh, Aria, did- Hota, yeah. Uh, Aria Hota, Balen, and Obara are okay. quote-unquote was- looking for dark stars. I was just right. picturing the the torrents of emails Matt was about to get with corrections and everyone calling, you know, calling well, the Ravens. That's a good point. <laughs> Dylan is going to. You're right. But I think that we're going to get uh, from uh, Ario is going to be our point of view character there to show yeah. us what happens. Okay. Quick. Wanted to say that before. I forgot. Sorry. Back to your normally scheduled. Our normally scheduled mm-hmm. program actually turns to you, Kelly. You want to lead us through... Uh, the rest of House Martell that we have not met? This was just kind of tying into, yeah, previously we were talking about the um, the lack of uh, Quentin before. So the lack of Quentin now, I'm guessing after we kind of talk that through, that it fits more in with the folding out or consolidation of the storylines in the show. This, there is no Aryan Martell. There's no Quentin Martell. And I think they had to drop those in order to drop the, the Fagon storyline. And that makes a lot of sense to me now that we've talked that out. Um, like, Arian was all bitter and mad, and Quentin was supposed to marry Danny, and all of that was dropped because they didn't have Fagon to tie it all together to say, well, Arian, you weren't going to lose your, you know, seed. You were going to get a much better one and, and stuff like that. So, Kelly, I actually mm-hmm. feel like initially they, they just put uh, Alaria in substitute for Ariane, at least in terms of the the kind of rebelling against Doran part, right? Yeah, definitely. She was a face we knew and a, a character and an actress that was already on set, so it made sense to give her all of that that plot devices. And I, whether or not they decided beforehand to drop all the Fagon stuff, they, they definitely used her when they decided to. Yeah, absolutely. But go ahead. My my only question is what you guys think about, uh, like, where does this leave Dorne at this point? Are they just kind of under the sand snakes control? Is it Queen Illyria? <laughs> What's, uh, who said those boats? I think the Queen of Dorne said something at some point about who she's dealing with in Dorne. But I can't remember it as well as you guys do about the show stuff. Well, the Queen of Thorns was brought there by Alaria to meet Varys. Okay, so that that's who's now yeah. in charge, and that's who's dealing with everything. Okay, then yeah, uh, that's that's that's, that she was she was talking to Alaria when she told the rest of the Sand Snakes to let the grown ups speak. I believe. <laughs> <That's crazy>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I'm assuming you, that Alaria is in charge at the moment, um, if anybody. So how much do you guys think that that changes any of the plot of what we are seeing there? Is it just kind of embodying more of the women, Doran, strong thing, or is it more? chaotic and ready to be filled with a Danny leader. Well, uh, if I could jump in on this, I think that what you would take from it in that house Martell on the show is pretty much kind of all beaten down. And is that once again, kind of spoiling the book, but if you see house Martell joining with Fagon and you believe Fagon's where, you know, is, aim for doom doesn't that kind of mean that house martell is kind of aiming aimed for doom itself in the books yeah you know like if if there was if there was fagon and if you believe the mummer's dragon is going to go down and uh certainly the preview chapters imply that house martell is going to be uh riding fagon pretty good then you know 
the kind of the writings on the wall, the writing was already on the wall for, uh, for Doran Martell and for Ariel Hota. And so, you know, they got it a bit early in the books where in the show, yeah, sorry, they got a bit early in the show where in the books, you know, they may survive till the end of, you know, the end of the winds of winter, or maybe the beginning of Dancing Dragons, but teaming with Fagon in the books means their days were numbered either way. Interesting. Susan. Uh, yes. Um, you know, I really am more of a fan of the show than I think I'm coming across here because I'm keeping saying, well, I'm not, I don't like how they did this in the show. I don't like how they did that in the show. <laughs> and I certainly don't like how they handled House Martell in the show. And I think that that's a, a fairly universal feeling. Um, so, you know, I, I just, the whole thing in the show, I think, has been ridiculous. So many of the, of the things that they did with them in terms of the fact that the Sand Snakes would now be ruling and uh, that that would just be accepted and they'd be able to kill off, uh, you know, the uh, Tristan and uh, Doran uh, as they did. I just think uh, that I just don't like how the way it was handled at all. I do agree with, uh, you know, in a sense of what you're saying that, you know, I, I see them aligned with uh, Aegon and that that is going to be eventually selling to him for House Martell in a lot of ways. Um, but I also think that they are going to have more of an impact before that happens. I think that there's going to be things that the Sand Snakes who are being sent to King's Landing are going to do there that uh, are going to have an impact on the story. I think that you know, there's going to be an impact on, on uh, you know, bringing down the Lannisters and uh, and other things that will occur before they're doomed. So they're going to have an impact, but then they will not. They, then they will probably get uh, massacred. <laughs> wait, wait, could I jump in on this, Susan? Susan, you think that uh, I, some of the Sand Snakes who are going to King's Landing are going to have something to do with the downfall? Did you say the downfall of the Lannisters? I think that, you know, I, I, I do think that it, the way that they handled it in the show in terms of the sand snakes being willing to kill their uncle, the ruler of uh, Dorne, I, I just, that to me didn't resonate. But them, even though they promised uh, Dorne in the uh, books that they were going to follow him and, you know, be part of his plan. The fact that we have one of them going to be on the small council and another one going to the face, you know, may put them in situations where they're going to have an opportunity to perhaps uh, get uh, revenge on some Lannisters like they wanted to. Well, the one, what I would say to that is this, this guy, I have, I apologize to whoever this writer was who pointed these things out. And that is in Area Hota's, one of his chapters in A Feast for Crows, uh, Sand Snake is talking to Doran. And as soon as she leaves Doran, Area Hota runs to Doran and starts checking him for scratches because Area was afraid she, this Sand Snake might have tried to poison and kill Doran. And similarly, right. in, in this same chapter, uh, Doran, uh, sorry, Ariel keeps thinking about boy, Obara. She's kind of uh, she's kind of uh, hard to handle. Like he's thinking, boy, she might be tricky. And and this guy pointed out that the books, as Martin loves to do, has some paragraphs you can read 
where it even implies that on this journey of Bail and Swan, Ariel Hota and Obara after, uh, after uh, Dark Star, there's certainly enough hints that make you see that Obara could join with Dark Star and kill Obara, just like the Sand Snakes killed, excuse me, Obara could kill Ariel, just like the Sand Snakes killed Ariel in the show. So it, it, the show didn't present it especially uh, smoothly, but there are hints in the book that there is a chance the Sand Snakes could kill Doran and Ariel Hota. Uh, possibly. Area. I, I, just, I don't see it happening to Thorn, but maybe I'm wrong. We'll, we'll find out in 25 years. Yeah, right. I, I, I do think <laughs> the ones that the six are going to the Capitol are going to gonna, uh, be playing out some of their actions there. And I think that there's going to be results from them going to be you know, part of the phase and part of the small council. Uh, Stephanie, your thoughts on anything House Martell in, in relation to any of these subjects? Anything come to mind? I'm a little divided on everything, but one thing uh, I did not like the way they portrayed it in the show. I think that, like Susan said, that was pretty universal. Um, but I do like the idea that Kelly brought up that they're kind of combining all the characters and kind of showing, like, yay, women endure and, like, um, Alaria and the Sand Snakes are taking over kind of like not Ariane is taking over in the books, but she has a bigger role to play and they let women have a bigger role in Doran. So I, mm-hmm. I like the way that Kelly brought that up. Um, I don't think that the Sand Snakes are going to have anything to do with the Lannisters. I don't think they're that important. I um, The whole Sand Snakes, Doran thing, especially in the show, just kind of it really turns me off. Um, I, I hate to sound like, like Susan said that I don't like the show. I love the show, but just their whole, the way they handle that. I just, I wasn't really a fan. And folks, we're going to put a stop to it right there and hold all of the rest of our material for the next podcast. In the next episode, we'll be covering a few more characters that we may never see in the show, as well as some more complicated theories and how they work out between show and books In the meantime, if you want to contact Kelly, you can find her at Kelly Underfoot on Twitter. If you want to contact Susan, at Black Eyed Lily on Twitter. If you want to talk to Stephanie, that's at SM Persephone. That's S-M-P-E-R-S-E phone. And if you want to talk to Bubba, of course, from the Joffrey of Podcast and the Double P Podcasting Network, you can find him on Twitter at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. Here's Axel Foley to tell you how to contact me. You've been listening to Podcast Winterfell. Find the podcast blog at podcastwinterfell.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter, twitter.com slash winterfellpod. Contact the podcast either by email, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com, or by calling the listener line, 314-669-1840.